What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. I want people to get there on their own. You know, if, if I don't change a single mind, that's perfectly okay if I make people understand better why I believe the particular uh, viewpoint that I do. And I want to understand why they believe the viewpoint that they do and then let us uh, reason together to come to whatever conclusions we want. An ordained minister has decided to give up God for a year. How the heck do you just up and become atheist after being a pastor? What I'm most worried about right now is figuring out how I can live openly and honestly. I am finally free to be me. I have no idea how to find friends or become a part of a community that's not religious. What does life look like after church, after religion, after God? That's, you know, that's, that's it in a nutshell. This is the Life After God podcast, a conversation on the space between belief and unbelief and beyond with your host, Ryan Bell. Welcome to the Life After God podcast. My name is Ryan Bell, and I'm your host. This is episode 51, and today I'll be sharing with you a conversation I recently recorded with Sean Carroll. But before I get into that, let me just say again how glad I am to be back on the air how much fun this is for me, and how grateful I am for your listenership and for writing to me. So many of you reached out this past week to say that you were glad that I was back and that you appreciated the podcast. I really do enjoy hearing from you and hearing the specific ways that the podcast has helped you and, and the ways that you enjoy it. So please feel free to write to me anytime. It really, it really is uh, encouraging to me, even if I don't have a chance to respond to every email I am always grateful to to read them, and I do read every one. I've had a chance over the last few days to record several new episodes, including the one that I'm going to share with you today. And it reminds me how, how much fun it is to engage with people and hear their stories and talk about big ideas and the ways that those ideas have changed people and shaped their lives and directed their lives in new ways. And I have a lot of really exciting ideas for future episodes. If you have ideas for future episodes, people you'd like me to talk to, topics you would like me to explore, ways that you would uh, like me to engage with people, I would uh, love to hear that from you. As I said last week, one of the things I really want to focus more on are the elements of a healthy, secular, humanist worldview. And that really ranges from you know art and science to politics and religion, history and sociology and psychology, there really isn't a subject that's been uh, explored and, and written on that isn't appropriate to for us to consider in um, thinking about what it means to live in a secular society, as, especially as people who were formerly religious. How do we reconstruct or construct for ourselves a, uh, a framework through which we can understand the world, our experience in it, and the experiences of others that, um, that are part of our society. Today we're talking to Sean Carroll, who is a theoretical physicist at Caltech here in Pasadena, actually just down the road from me. 
Sean spends most of his time researching and writing for a technical audience of physicists, but he is also the author of three books about physics intended for a popular audience, From Here to Eternity, The Particle at the End of the Universe, and most recently, The Big Picture, On the Origins of Life, Meaning, and the Universe Itself. This recent book, which came out last year, is the focus of our conversation if you're looking for a book to help you understand recent research in theoretical physics, this is definitely a good one. But what I love most about this book is the way that Sean very elegantly weaves together philosophy and science. Many scientists today take a very disparaging view of philosophy and take whatever opportunities they can to take pot shots at philosophy and philosophers. And likewise, philosophers at times take shots at physicists and other scientists. But Sean attempts to rise above that fray and hold these two worlds in tension. He coins a term in this book called poetic naturalism, which I take to be his way of acknowledging that when we talk about the world and when we talk about the universe and when we talk about our lived experience of the world, we, we can talk about it at several different levels. We can talk about it at the level of fundamental particles in physics, and we can talk about it in everyday terms of our lived experience. And, and all of these ways of approaching what's true and what's real are important and are attempting to get at something slightly different. These realms of conversation co can coexist and cooperate with, each other, with one another to paint a much more beautiful picture of the universe and our life in it. In the very last section, he takes up the subject of ethics, and uh, this is the part, of course, having been a theologian myself, uh, that is the most interesting to me. I hope you appreciate as much as I do, um, Sean taking the time out of his busy schedule uh, to speak with us. So without any further delay, here's my conversation with Sean Carroll. Sean Carroll, welcome to the Life After God podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure. I have been reading your book over the last year. It's taken me, not because it's difficult, actually, it's uh, you've taken all of your research knowledge and boiled it down quite nicely for the, the average reader who isn't a scientist, but um, my reading habits go all over the world. So I, uh, <laughs> <it's>, <laughs> I've sort of slowly picked away at it for a while, and it, it's been a really great read, and I've been wanting to talk to you about it since I first started on it, uh, and I'm just really thankful for your time. Well, the chapters are short, and this is uh, you know, not just something that happened that way. This is a very deliberate idea because I really wanted it to be something that people could pick up, read a chapter at a time, mull over, and uh, the whole thing adds up to a lot of stuff going on, so I didn't want it to be too overwhelming in that sense. Yeah, I wanted to talk to you about the origins of the book. And, and you are a, a part of a growing group, I would say, of scientists who are making a real effort to um, take what is very difficult about the universe, uh, anything that's beyond the scope of our normal five senses, and, and help, it, help the rest of us understand it a bit better. What was the origin for you of, of this book? How did you come around to the idea of writing it and, and finally make the decision to write it? 
Well, this was a book I had in mind uh, for a very long time. I mean, in some sense, long before it was a book, it was still uh, a subject that was fascinating to me. I, I always was interested not only in science and physics, but also in philosophy and how it all fits together. I mean, my, my goal is to understand how the world works, and I think that involves science but goes beyond it as well. And uh, when it came to writing a book, it was actually the first book I ever proposed to write in some sense, back in the year 2000 or something like that. Um, an editor dropped by my office uh, and wondered if I was interested in writing a popular-level book, and I said, yes, but I don't want to write one that, about physics. Everyone's been doing that. I would like to write one that, that explains why science leads us to believe that God doesn't exist. And he was fascinated by the idea, but he couldn't sell it to his publishing house <laughs> as an interesting possibility. They were like, we're not sure anyone would buy that. That was before The God Delusion came out and sold a bajillion copies. Nah, uh, you could have been one of the four horsemen. I, you know, there, maybe there would have been five of us. Who knows? That does, <laughs> not, not quite as sexy a title when there's five people. Um <laughs> So by the time that I did get around to writing it, I mean, so sort of co to complete that story, I ended up writing a book on the arrow of time called From Eternity to Here, which did okay, and then another book on the Higgs boson called The Particle at the End of the Universe, and that did pretty well mm -hmm. in terms of sales. And that, and basically, these days, when you write a sort of respectable book, the, you want it to sell not because you make money because you're you're not actually making any money when your book sells because it's almost certain that you made a you, you got an advance that was large enough that you'll never earn back your advance from royalties right <laughs> right but what does happen is the more you sell the more you get an advance for your next book <laughs> so basically the fact that the particle at the end of the universe sold well allowed me to sort of demand that I wanted to write a book for the next one that was uh, really back to this uh, sort of bigger picture kind of question. And my, my editor was very happy to you know go down that. It turns out that the editor I have now working with me was the same guy who dropped by my office in the year 2000, but he's with a completely different publishing house and it's a completely different circumstance. But he was enthusiastic to finally get the chance to do this. Uh, so, so we did it. And uh, it, it took me longer to write than any of my other books. And I interviewed a lot of people and thought hard about it. And hopefully uh, it turned out well. I mean, I can only imagine how long it must have taken. And uh, so you're basically what you were saying a minute ago is that you got, you sort of earned the political capital to sort of say, now, I want to write the book I want to write. <laughs> yeah, and, exactly. Right. Yeah. You got to trust me a little bit. I know what I'm doing. <laughs> right. Exactly. And did has it done well? Yeah, it's actually just to everyone's surprise, certainly to my publisher's surprise, uh, it sold more than any of my other books. A uh, couple weeks on the New York Times bestseller list for hardcover nonfiction. And uh, yeah, they've been the paperbacks can be coming out in May, so uh, we're enthusiastic. And uh, yeah, it's a it's an interesting thing that people really want to uh, read the stuff. I feel like the intellectuals of bygone eras were more generalists. They were you know people who could write about history and philosophy and science, and you know people like Isaac Newton. You know were these people who spanned all of these uh, subject disciplines and. I, so I love books like that, and I, I appreciated the fact that yours was that way. And I think it is somewhat rare to find people who can, with a kind of a measured amount of discipline, write across all those those subjects. 
Well, it was certainly a lot of fun uh, from my end, right? Uh, I got to read a whole bunch of things that I wouldn't uh, get to ordinarily read in for, for work purposes. And I even better got to just knock on people's doors and, you know, people, Nobel Prize winning biologists and famous philosophers and, you know, lunch with Daniel Dennett uh, in uh, Davis Square. And uh, we, we just, I just had a great time thinking about this stuff. And I don't make the claim in, in writing the book that I am an expert about many of the things I write about. I'm very honest that I'm not an expert because there is no person in the world who is an expert on all of these subjects. But it is important for the people who care about these different subjects to talk to each other. I don't think that books should only be written by people who are experts in the specific field they're writing about. Uh, I think that a lot of it's brought into by people from one field thinking carefully and respectfully about another one. So my attitude is not that I'm a physicist. I can tell philosophers or neuroscientists how to do their jobs. My attitude is that, you know, I'm a physicist, you're a philosopher, you're a neuroscientist, we should all be talking to each other. No, I think that's beautiful. And I, I, I'm not sure that the academy as we know it today really naturally encourages that. So, it's, Oh, it, it does not. Let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it feels we that can way. We go so far as to say that it discourages it. That's perfectly. <laughs> Certainly would never want to denigrate expertise, you know, especially <laughs> in the current climate that we're uh, in right now in the United States. Uh, we, we need as much expertise um, as we can get our hands on across all sorts of different disciplines. But most of us are not experts at anything. We're sort of just generalists trying to get by in the world, doing what we have to do to, to survive. And it is so refreshing for experts to come down from the proverbial ivory tower and, and sort of have a conversation with each other while the rest of us are listening in, which is kind of, I think, the way your book reads – you know, the universe is bigger than all of us. So uh, I, I look at it as we are all trying to understand what's going on. And, you know, none of us is really much uh, much of an expert at all compared to the whole universe. So let's right. uh, consider ourselves to be on the same side rather than competing. A little humility. Yeah. So the, the subject, it's so interesting because it is such a broad ranging book. Just before we got on the phone, I was starting to think, you know, what what is the subject of this book? And I guess I came, tell me if I got it right. I it, To me, it's the word you keep using again and again, even more than probably the expression that is associated with this book that you, this kind of this concept that you coined poetic naturalism. To me, the book is about ontology. It is, it's about what is, what, what can we reasonably say exists and what can we say about what we suspect exists? Is that, is that a fair yeah. assessment? Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, it's it's in some sense a sales pitch for naturalism, which is a particular kind of ontology, you know, saying that what exists is the natural world, the world that obeys rules that we can discover through empirical investigation. And uh, yeah, I, I, you know, I wish that words like ontology and epistemology were just used in everyday conversation a lot more rather than being thought of as, uh, you know, weird things that we should chuckle at slightly when we hear them uh, out there uh, on the streets. So, uh, yeah, I think that, you know, more scientists should write books to talk about ontology. Yeah. And and just to be clear, uh, you know, um, and I have to look these words up myself at times, um, you know, ontology is simply the study of, of, well, the word means being, right? Like what what exists? What is it that we can say is? Right. Some people want to uh, – I've read some comments on the book by people on the theological side of things who claim that I don't know what ontology means because they bring up the you know root word of being and they think that ontology should really just be talking about what it means to be. 
and that's what that's what it should be. But working philosophers, especially philosophers of science, speak of an ontology. You, you have an ontology that the world is objects in space, or the, an ontology that the world is wave functions in Hilbert space if you're more quantum mechanical, and so forth. And that's the sense in which I use it in. There's sort of all sorts of different kinds of ontologies that uh, are really just different expressions of what the world is at a fundamental level. And that, you know, there's no more fundamental question than that, and it's one that involves both physics and the rest of science and philosophy in, an, in a very important way. You said a minute ago that it's a sales pitch for naturalism, but unlike a sales pitch, you really don't start with your assumption and try to like really drive it home the way you know I might say, you know, hey, Hondas are the best and here's why you should buy one. Um, you really go about it in, in a very thoroughgoing I would say scientific way where you said, <laughs> here are the best arguments against what I'm about to tell you. And, and, you know, these, these arguments need to be addressed, um, with consideration and thoroughness because they're not stupid. Here's eventually why I don't think that holds water, but we shouldn't dismiss those questions out of hand. And I found that really refreshing. Yeah, you know, and I think that, again, because the universe is bigger than all of us, um, it's not just a fake humility here. Like, we could be wrong about any of these things. So even though it's a sales pitch, but with a very particular strategy for making the sale, which is that I'm going to be honest. <laughs> I'm going to lay out all of the different possibilities as I see them. You know, some possibilities of ways that I could be wrong seem more reasonable to me than others, and therefore that probably comes through that I'm slightly more dismissive of some uh, aspects of, of the, of the uh, controversies than I am of other ones. But, you know, uh, I, I want people to get there on their own. You know, if, if I don't change a single mind, that's perfectly okay if I make people understand better why I believe the particular uh, viewpoint that I do. And I want to understand why they believe the viewpoint that they do, and then let us uh, reason together to come to whatever conclusions we want. Yeah, I think that's, you know, that's so respectable. And I, I feel like any debate that I've ever been a part of, whether formal or informal, I've always felt it a win when at the end, you know, the person that I was discussing and debating with said, hey, you really, you know, articulated your view really well and fairly and you didn't take unnecessary sort of swipes at me, you know, you know, that kind of thing where you, you really mm -hmm. say like, this is the basis on which I build my understanding of the world and I understand that it's different than yours, but here's why I think mine's preferable. And I, it seems to me any reasonable person has to approach that and and sort of accept the terms, at least, on which the conversation's happening, even if you end up disagreeing about the details. Yeah, you know, I think that uh, if what you actually cared about is reaching people, rather than, you know, reaching people who don't already agree with you, let me put it that way, rather than simply preaching to the converted and having them cheer you on as you vanquish their foes, uh, it's just smart to be respectful of other beliefs. And you know what? You might even learn something. You might even, like, actually change your mind about this this uh, issue or another one. So yeah. uh, I at least try to do things that way in, the, in this book. Yeah, it's great. I mean, there are times where you, you even say, yeah, man, I I wish I could live another hundred thousand years. That'd be great if that were true. Like, I, <laughs> absolutely. I, you yeah. know, if we're if we're talking about wishful thinking, you know, yeah, let me be really honest and say that's a pretty attractive sales pitch, as it were, for the other side. Um, and uh, yeah, all things being equal, I 
I'd, I'd sign up for another 100,000 years, no question about it. But yeah. gosh, I have to face the honest truth. And I feel like sometimes in our, our zeal as naturalists and atheists to sort of make our point that this is how the world really is, it's almost as if we feel we need to say, hey, there's no downside here at all. Like, this is all great. Life's wonderful. You know, AI is going to take over and we're going to upload ourselves to the cloud and we'll all live happily ever after. And I just don't see the world that way. I'm like, you know, the, the world as it is after I gave up my religion and the world before, it's pretty much the same world. I just have a different way of looking at it. Yeah, it is. It's that. This is a very tricky issue because I do think that once you appreciate, you know, once you finally accept that the world we're living in right now, the world we see and touch around us, that's the world. You know, it's uh, there's it's not a dress rehearsal for something that comes next. Mm. Um, there's there's the important question of how does that change how you live your life? And in particular, is it sort of good news or bad news? Right. And, you know, I'm very happy to say that it's sort of bad news in the sense that I would like to live longer or, you know, have rewards afterward, et cetera. But there is also a flip side that you it's a very real feeling that it's liberating and challenging and arguably fun to think that you get to decide how to live your life rather than simply try your best to obey the rules that are laid down from outside. And I think once you really do accept that this is how the world works, many, many people are thankful that it works that way. And the people who don't believe it, the people who think that there is a force out there that came up with a purpose to the universe and our, our job is to obey that purpose, they're thankful it's that way too. So there's clearly some cognitive biases working here, right? So that you, know, <laughs> you come up with the reasons why the thing that you happen to think is true is also the thing that you want to be true. Um, but I'm not sure exactly you know, what, the, what the best way to adjudicate between uh, the facts and the cognitive biases actually is. Yeah, and I find that for me, what helps is just a community of thinkers. You know, it's if I'm thinking on my own, sort of as you, you talk about Descartes in the beginning, um, you know, if, if I'm just Descartes, like a, a, a solo thinker in a, in a closed room where I'm like, okay, if I think about this hard enough, I'm going to get it right. Um, you know, I'm just like at the whims of my cognitive biases at that point, <laughs> you know, but if I'm like engaging in a community of thinkers who can say, well, hold on, have you thought of it that way? Or this whole different set of lenses emerges that, that changes the way we, we see the world. And, you know, you talked a little bit about social construction of reality and that kind of thing. And I think this kind of leads us in a little bit to, to poetic naturalism, which I would love to have you sort of explain for a second, like naturalism, I think, you know, most people kind of get that, you know, naturalism is, is sort of the philosophical outlook that says, you know, what we see is what we get essentially. And we're going to base our, life decisions off of the best sort of understanding of what our five senses tells us about the world, but it's not this reductionist way of talking all the time. Well, the, yeah, the reductionism issue is, is a, is another tricky one. So, um, I just wanted to say, just to, to finish off the cognitive biases discussion, that uh, it is very, very interesting when you talk to audiences about cognitive biases, because everyone 
has the same reaction. They're like, yes, the people I disagree with do have all those cognitive <laughs> biases. No one ever says like, oh, that's very worrying. I wonder what false beliefs I have because of my cognitive bias. Like no one right. is at the slightest fretting about that. You know, they're, they're convinced that they're okay. I have yet to meet a person, maybe I'm being a little unfair, I've met, yet to meet a person who, you know, is first exposed to this idea that your brain is not perfectly rational and you have all these cognitive biases. And their first reaction is, oh, tell me how I can better overcome my cognitive bias. What have right? I gotten I wrong? Yeah, exactly. That's what the answer should be, but uh, it's a very, very difficult place to get mm, to. So true. But um, yeah, about poetic naturalism, you know, the, the naturalism part, like you said, is that there's only one world, the natural world. The poetic part is that there are many ways of talking about that world. Uh, and they're all in the, the important part of that. I mean, it's obvious there's many ways of talking about it. The important part is that many different ways can be simultaneously true if they fit whatever criteria of truth you have uh, in the, in, for the purposes you're talking about, and that's a whole important discussion all by itself. Now, so that's trying to say that on the one hand, there's a way of talking about the world that is fundamental, that is most comprehensive, that is the kind of thing that we would imagine fundamental physics tries to approach, where you have quantum mechanics and particles and fields and forces. And there are other ways of talking about the world like the sort of macroscopic manifest image of the world, where there are tables and chairs and planets and people. And these can both be right. You know, there's sort of a hardcore reductionist point of view that says only the fundamental physics way of talking about the world is right, that planets and chairs and tables are illusory. Mm. I think that's kind of obviously going too far. I don't a little think disingenuous. That chairs are illusions. I think that uh, chairs are, are definitely there. It's holding me um, up. Yeah, exactly. And so, but is that I, I've talked with with, with uh, philosophers who know a lot about this, about, you know, is that particular point of view reductionist or not? And, you know, they don't understand the word reductionist any more than anyone else does, and they're they're happy to admit it. So <laughs> I, I explicitly don't it's say a slur, yeah. that it is either a reductionist view or a non-reductionist view. Because on the one hand, I think that there is not – in principle, something that you know about the world at the higher level with chairs and, and, and tables and something, something that you could predict about what would happen next that in principle could not be derived from the lower level if you knew how to do the deriving, right? Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. how to do the deriving is important new knowledge. It's not there at the lower level all by itself. Right. So it's not that there is some sort of incompatibility between the different levels. Levels need to be compatible with each other. But the way to learn about any one level is generally to dis to study that level. It's generally not to like reduce everything to particles and forces and go from there. That's not how we're going to understand the consequences of the 2016 presidential election by thinking about the fundamental right. law of physics, right? Right. So, and there tends so to be a kind of like sanctimony that goes along with that by, you know, often a you know person who's read their first popular science book and thinks wow yeah. you know they they they're happy to jump on a comment thread on a blog and say no actually you know atoms don't have desires you know only you know serotonin right. is the exactly. only thing that's that right. you really like <laughs> well that that so that's the sneaky part of the other way that it goes so like many many people are are happy to say Sure, I agree that uh, it's not just particles and forces. There are also tables and chairs. But I am trying. I try to make the argument in the book that if you believe in tables and chairs 
and not just particles and forces, then you should believe in consciousness and free will and you know people having purposes and things like that because it's the same argument. It's This is a level of description where those concepts become very uh, helpful, accurate ways of describing what, what we observe in the world. Uh, and, and so there's I, I disagree with people who say that consciousness or free will are illusory for that reason. Right. Yeah, and there's almost a kind of, and I suppose it goes back to specialization and silos and the need that we all have to raise funds for our academic departments, you know, to make the claim that ours is the most important study. But I, I have often found, especially these days, that, you know, disciplines like psychology and sociology in particular are, are you know, easy targets of derision, um, you know, because they're just talking about mamby-pamby, like, you know artificial categories that don't really exist in the world like race and gender and you know sexual identity and 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 you kind of wade into that water a little bit too about you know what's real back to ontology again and like you're saying there's this tertiary level um you know if we can reason from particles and waves to tables and chairs we should be able to reason from you know tables and chairs to people's identities Right. And but you know, you don't even have to go to psychology and sociology. Even within physics, all by itself, hmm. there's this kind of divide between people who do particle physics or quantum field theory on the one hand and people who do condensed matter physics, you know, actual materials and substances and fluids and so forth. And, mm-hmm. you know, there all of these debates are right there without leaving the physics department. And uh <laughs> Nobel Prize winning physicist Philip Anderson, who studies condensed matter, he wrote a famous paper in the 1970s called More is Different, where he tried to make the point that studying these large collections of particles is studying something different than studying a particle at a time. Uh, There's really new knowledge that comes in. And I tried to make the case that, yes, there is new knowledge that comes in, and at the same time, that knowledge better be compatible with the knowledge that is at the underlying level. To me, this, on the one hand, seems perfectly obviously true. On the other hand, seems to be weirdly controversial in some circles. People like want to – it's one of those debates where people really want to phrase their own claims and the ones they disagree with in the most contentious way so that they can disagree as strongly as possible rather than trying to find the common ground. Yeah, yeah. I mean, is it is it a way of saying the whole is more than the sum of the parts, but never less than the sum of the parts? I mean, is that one way of looking at it? Well, I think that it's hard to you know squeeze the truth into quite such a glib formulation. Oh, I, what I, I was say, really you know? hoping that we could put it on a bumper sticker. Oh well. I mean, the whole is has to do with the sum of its parts, but also all of the different things that are implicit in the way the parts can come together. Right. Okay. The there's not only what each individual part can do, but you know if you if you're told the rules of chess, right? If you're told how each individual piece moves, you don't become instantly a good chess player, Ugh, right? There's true. new knowledge in what moves are effective and things like that. Like it's implicit there. If you knew all the rules of chess and you were Laplace's demon, you had like perfect knowledge and perfect processing power, you could just do much better than Deep Blue, right? The computer, you could run every possible future that your chess game could have and you would win every time. The, no, None of us is that smart. So in fact, in, in practice, when you have incomplete knowledge, the, there is both the underlying rules and the emergent higher level rules that uh, help you truly understand something about the world. Yeah, that makes sense. One of the tools 
that shows up from cover to cover in your book is a type of reasoning known as Bayesian reasoning. Tell us a little bit about what that is. It comes up a lot in these discussions about science and philosophy and logic. Um, what is Bayesian reasoning and how is it that you use it to arrive at your conclusions? Yeah, I mean, in some sense, poor Reverend Bayes didn't know what he was getting into. Uh, he's a Presbyterian minister who basically figured out a formula, a formula that answers the following question. Say that you have some degree of belief in something. You're not sure whether it's true, but you think there's an 80% chance that it's true. And then you learn something new about the world. You gather some data, some new information. How do you update your belief from what it was, 80%? Is it now more true, less true, and by what exact fraction is it true? It's a very down-to-earth, it's a theorem, right? We call it mm -hmm. Bayes' theorem. It can't be false. Given the assumptions of the theorem, the theorem will be true. But implied by this theorem, or sort of implicit in how it's used, is a whole point of view on what knowledge is, which we now call Bayesian reasoning, which I don't know if Reverend Bayes had any glimmer that that was what was coming when he invented <laughs> his formula. But it's the idea that uh, you know we go through life being confronted, at least implicitly, with all sorts of different propositions about the world, and the way to reach conclusions about whether these propositions are true or false is to start with what's called a prior belief, a prior credence, a degree of belief in something, mm -hmm. which even if you know nothing or very little or you know nothing very helpful, you still have some degree of belief in whether a proposition is true, right? Sure. You know, yeah. I, let's pick a particular star out there in the galaxy. You know, I, I point to it in the sky and I say, how many planets are circling that star? Mm. Well, you've never seen, like, you've never been there. There's no data that you have. Our telescopes haven't looked at it, but you still have a degree of belief. You say, well, it's probably, you know, there's a certain chance that there are zero. There's a certain chance there's between one and five, a certain chance there's six or more, you know, and you can go through mm. those pr prior probabilities. And then when you collect more data, those probabilities change. And that's what's called Bayesian reasoning, and it works for everything from very, very specific down-to-earth claims like the number of planets around a star to big-picture questions like, is the natural world all there is, or is there something more out there? Hmm. And so it sounds like it's something that we all do, whether we realize we're doing it or not. It's something that we should all be doing, <laughs> but are not very good at doing. You know, again, our brains did not evolve to be perfect reasoning machines. So right. there are things like the backfire effect, right? Where if somebody believes something to a high degree of probability and you show them a piece of data, a factual, uh, you know, finding by some scientific study that contradicts their belief, mm. they come away believing in it more strongly. Because they want to defend their beliefs. That's what we do. That's how we work as human beings. And there's a certain survival instinct that kicks in rather than a good Bayesian reasoning instinct that should kick in. Yeah, I'm really tempted to go down a political trail here, which I, I won't subject you to. I have no idea what, what you're referring to uh, as <laughs> yeah. how this could possibly be relevant to politics in to, any way. You know, alternative facts and, and things yes. like that, you know, where it seems so obvious to. What's what's interesting, and I'll, I'll just say this to keep it bipartisan. What's interesting um, is that the sort of opposition to things that are clearly false, uh, it one seem, seeming indication that people aren't using any kind of reasoning, Bayesian or otherwise, is uh, the kind of, I guess, unanimity that emerges around something being 
false or I suppose in some cases true, but in our current political climate, there seems to be um, false claims that are almost universally condemned by, by people that are used to being enemies. You know what I'm saying? Like there's just an over, you know, overwhelming amount of evidence that uh, certain claims aren't true. And yet people hold on to them so diligently because it serves some other uh, end that they have. Whereas where truth like the whole point of your book is to arrive at a, a sense as best as possible of what's real, what's true, and, and it seems some people have no interest in that subject matter all at all. Well, I think that's the up, up until the last bit. I think I was on board with you, but I, I don't think it's ever fair to say that there are people who are uninterested in getting at what is true and, and correct. No. no one would say that of themselves, right? I right. Mean, that's, that's true. That's not quite fair, but. What they do is they have different priors and they have different ways of updating their beliefs. And so when you explain Bayesian reasoning, like everyone says, but that's just obvious and common sense and we do it all the time. But it's clearly not at all what we do (laughs) all the time. We regularly, number one, choose what information to expose ourselves to. Mm. And number two, we choose how to deal with that information. You know, there's no fact that you can be told that you can't ask yourself, well, where did that fact come from? Why did they tell me that? You know, maybe I shouldn't believe it at the straightforward level. Maybe it's a sign of some underlying conspiracy. And it, epistemology is hard. And that's why, you know, it's mm. it's worth banging the drum a little bit about Bayesianism and banging the drum a little bit about cognitive biases because we're not good Bayesian reasoners and we should try better to be. So it's something we can discipline ourselves to do. Yeah, you know, there's there's some uh, data out there in the psychology literature that that goes toward the observation that there's a difference between intelligence and rationality, right? There are okay. people who are very intelligent but wildly irrational and vice versa. And mm. I mean, there's there might be some weak correlation between them, but they're two very different things. However, rationality can in some sense be learned, whereas intelligence is very hard to change over time. But you can learn, you can train yourself to be more rational. Uh, it's still hard. There are, you know, I, I, I know people who are very... Uh, who very proud of their own degree of rationality, yet their blind spots are pretty glaringly obvious to, to those uh, to other people. But yet you, know, you can sort of understand the tricks your mind plays on you and, and tools for overcoming those and trying to get closer and closer to the truth. So that 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 I think is actually a uh, cause for optimism where it comes when it comes to how human beings understand the world. Yeah, I think that's important, especially for the audience that probably most listens to this podcast. You know, they tend to be, you know, people who have once been religious, who aren't anymore, and and who very often face all of the challenges associated with that, like speaking to family members and close friends about their change of views, about the way that they have updated their viewpoints based on new information, and are confronted by their family and friends' really un- unwillingness to hear them out or concern or fear uh, that short circuits that reasoning process. And so, so I think that that is helpful. And, and maybe there are some ways almost like games or, or ways that we could take a little of the sting out of it. Cause if, if every time we're talking about changing our mind about something, it's some life and death matter, like whether God yeah. exists or, right. <laughs> or whether, you know, our democracy is headed for demise, you know, the, those stakes are pretty high and people, you know, all their biases come to light 
to defend, you know, their prior belief. But if it's, you know, something something more playful or a, a sort of lower stakes analogy, um, it might be easier to help people s- to learn. All, all of us, of course, we're always worried about the other person's ability to do this. But like you said earlier, we should be focused most, you know, primarily on our ability to to be more reasonable. Yeah, and I think it is, you know, uh, again and again, even though the Bayesian reasoning sounds very logical and, and straightforward, there are tricks to it, and it, does, it is counterintuitive in some ways. One of the big ones is that, you know, it, Bayesian, the Bayesian package comes in two pieces. Number one, there are these prior beliefs, where you start with. And uh, I make the argument in the book, those prior beliefs never should be 0% or 100%. They should always be, you know, they can be 0.001% mm. or 99.999, but if they're exactly zero or one, then you can literally never change your mind. There's no evidence that could come in that would ever change you. Right. Um, but somewhere in between. And the other part are what are called the likelihoods. If something were true, what is the chance that new data would come in in a certain way? And that's the that's the part that is most counterintuitive to most people. So when I talk in you know the, the debate I had with William Lane Craig or in the book, I say, look, if you really want to sit down and carefully, rationally analyze the question of is theism or naturalism more likely to be correct, you have to answer the question, under theism or under naturalism, what would you expect the world to look like if you didn't know anything about what it looked like? Right, right. right. This is a very, very hard mental exercise to go through. The much more common thing is to sort of look at something about the world and say, yes, I can explain that perfectly well in my theory, right? Right, right. And uh, so anyone can do that, but that's not getting us any closer to the truth. The question is, what would you have thought the world should look like under your theory before you had looked at it? So, and that's very, very hard to do in many ways. So, in the book, I make the examples like people talk about the problem of evil, right? There's evil right. in the world. Uh, that's yeah, why would God make evil in the world? And there's counter arguments to that. Well, God wants us to have free will. God wants human beings to be able to express themselves rather than just determining everything. So you can explain it away. But I say in the book, well, imagine if there weren't evil in the world. Right. Imagine if we lived in a world where everyone was nice to each other and just and so forth. Would you take that as evidence that God existed? And of course you would, right? Like, of right. course, if you wanted to believe in God, you'd say, well, look, there's no evil in the world. Isn't that great? <laughs> uh, therefore, it is mathematically rigorously true that the fact that there is evil in the world decreases the chances that God exists. You right. can't – it can't happen both ways. The presence or absence of evil can't both increase the probability that God is real, right? Right. So there's there's some sense in which – And it you know, doesn't if, prove if you, anything. Like the existence of evil doesn't never prove anything. Yeah, anything. exactly. That's right. And the whole – as soon as you start talking about someone, how do you prove this or that, then you've already you know, lost the train at the first station. And you really have to sort of step back and sadly have a talk about epistemology. Right. That's never what people want to do. They want to get to the juicy good stuff. But it's never about proving something with 100 percent probability. Well, that makes me think about perhaps my favorite part of the book. When it came to the ethics portion of your book, I was super interested to know where you were going to go with that because that's – among scientists, um, a fairly controversial area. And you, I mean, you spend a lot more time talking in that section of the book about what we can't know about ethics than what we can know, you know, which I think is really honest, you know, and, and of course I liked it cause it matched my view, which is that 
there aren't these um, ethical facts in the world. But how, how do you then? I guess I guess the way I want to get want to get into this from where we were just a minute ago is as we're doing this, you know, non-provable sort of Bayesian reasoning, and we're trying to make sense of the world. It ultimately, you know, for most. Um, Theists, especially, but then people who were theists who aren't anymore, it really always comes down to, but how can we know what's right in the world? And don't we need some kind of outside universal code to to tell us what to do? Um, Can you briefly talk about how you sort of untangle that knot for yourself and what you suggest others do? Yeah, I think, I mean, it is a crucially important question. And um, it's, it's, an area where the most committed of naturalists can uh, very easily fall prey to believing what they want to be true rather than what the evidence points to. And there's many uh, aspects of that. You know, I, I, For better or for worse, in the book, I try very hard when we don't know the answer to something or when there is no answer to be honest about that. Yeah. Uh, and people want answers, right? They really – they really do want that. Um, and so sometimes I'm just not going to give it to them. And, and maybe I'm wrong about that. Maybe there are answers out there that they can find. But when it comes to ethics or morality or you know how to behave in the world, values more generally, I, I think that there's a very strong argument. I mean it's almost it's almost perversely simple and obvious, the argument, that there aren't any such things to be found out there in the world. Right. If you're a naturalist. I mean, if you're if you're not a naturalist, then, then it's a different story. But for naturalists, just the universe doesn't care. The universe doesn't care how you act. The universe doesn't give you any guidance to how to be a good person or anything like that. And to me, this is just very, very obvious. But the the desire that people have, and including I had this desire when I was, you know, younger, and I don't mean that to disparage people who still have it, but I went through a phase when I tried to figure out how to behave, you know, because we evolved in certain ways uh, over historical time, and therefore it's natural for us to have uh, certain desires and so forth. And I later learned this is called the naturalistic fallacy, and there's a name for it. Um, but on the one hand, the universe doesn't care how we behave. You can't derive oughts from ises, is uh, David Hume's clever formulation of it. Right. And uh, so I, you know, I do go to some great length to hammer that home, even though I think it's kind of perfectly obvious. And then – but there's no reason to therefore despair and be nihilistic about it. Um, I think that the idea that without the universe telling us how to behave – all we have left is despair and nihilism is actually like secretly accepting the presuppositions that religion would have had us accept all along that you know <laughs> right. purposes came from god and if you remove god then you don't have any more purposes and so uh, many naturalists just want to replace nature with, with god with nature in that formulation rather than questioning the formulation itself if you can treat uh, desires and values and things that we care about and purposes and moral guidance as things that are constructed by human beings, then yeah, that's fine. That's what actually happens in the world. And it, it, like I said earlier uh, today, it's, it's, it's challenging and fascinating and creative to try to do it. And the real objection people then have is, yes, but people might not agree with me. There's no objective standard. Right, and uh, at that point, there's many things I want to say, which is that like one of them is just, have you ever talked to another person? They're going to disagree with you. Like the the lack of agreement's not going to go away just because you have some claimed objective standard. But you know, it's 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 the second thing is it's okay to disagree about these things. You know, you you 
use your ordinary powers of persuasion and uh, y- you know um, reasoning that you can to sort of say, well, what are our common starting points? How can we work together to get to a, a conclusion that is compatible? And if fundamentally you can't, then you put them in jail. Right, that's what you do in the real world. It's not a disaster. It's not the end of the way we have of dealing with life as human beings. It's how we actually live our lives in the real world. Yeah, I mean, things become normative uh, ethical standards by consensus, right? I mean, we there may have been a time in the distant past, well, maybe not so distant past, where you know, murder was just sort of the rule of the day and whoever was strongest could muscle whatever they wanted away from somebody else. And then over time, we kind of said, you know, this is really not a very good way to structure a society. People ought not to kill one another. Why? Not because there's some sort of thing in the sky that says we shouldn't do that, but because it really doesn't conduce to a very structured, healthy society that allows the most people to thrive. And if that's our goal probably we shouldn't let people just go around killing each other. I mean, it's just sort of, it's very functional, isn't it? Isn't that... Well, yeah, it, it's, it's, this is a very complicated, difficult story that you know is exactly what I uh, tried not to be too definitive about because there's so much going on. When human beings are involved, it's always going to be infinitely more complicated than when you just talk about particle physics and cosmology. So uh, <laughs> I, I do think um, that over historical time... Uh, on average, we've been getting better at treating each other as human beings. You know, uh, there's people sometimes react against that idea because they look at the world and say, look, we're still not treating each other very well. And I, I can agree with that. But compared to what it was, we're, st- we're doing much better right now than we used to do. But I don't think that's inevitable. Uh, I could easily see it stopping or going the other way or we right. can all just kill each other you know so you don't want to act like it's some historic uh momentum that that uh, human nature has it's because people are fighting for it and trying to make it better we could lose it at any moment sure uh and it's still not at all clear where it's going to go or you know what what the rules are like there are plenty of people who think that not eating animals is as strong a moral um precept as not enslaving people and the fact that we used to enslave people all the time and now think it's horrible is exactly what we will think about eating animals and i don't agree with that but you know it's it you could see the historic logic of it if you want to if you want to agree with that if that's what you want to hold on to so there are things that are up in the air and we don't have the final answers yet so i think that it's this is something which is a process not a destination it's really a a matter of trusting the process and trying our best to work together to figure out how we should live these and and answer these questions one of the things i wanted to ask you is about the future i mean so much of maybe everything in your book is about sort of the past things that have happened that we can then observe and make observations and conclusions about. But, you know, I've recently been reading this new book um, by the author of uh, Sapiens. Um, yep. Whose name Yuval is... Harari. There we go. Um, his new book, Homo Deus, um, you know, is kind of then taking his his project out into the future. And um, I find when, when people read um, Steven Pinker, for example amazing amount of research has gone on gone into his observation as you said a minute ago that we've on the whole become less violent more um supportive of human societies 
uh, flourishing without violence, um, finding other ways of achieving our common goals. Um, I find that when people hear and read that, they sort of jump to the conclusion, as you said, that, well, that that just means that everything's going to keep getting better. And I kind of feel this happening in the early pages. I haven't finished uh, Homo Deus yet. Um, I get this a little bit from Michio Kaku as well, that... And I'm sorry if I'm putting you on the spot around in particular individuals. Shut me down on that if you want to. But <laughs> but uh, I feel like there's this real optimism about the future that I can't find. Maybe it's just that I'm sort of a more melancholy person, but I just don't see that trajectory necessarily continuing in the direction that some of these thinkers, um, you know, anticipate. Well, yeah, it's... Uh, I, I think that um, I'm very reluctant to make very specific sounding predictions about things that are happening far in the future. And so here's why. I think that uh, things are still changing very, very rapidly. Um, we, we always tend to think that we can take what happened for the last 50 years, extrapolate them toward the next 50 years, and then we'll settle down and nothing will happen after that. <laughs> and it's, of right. course, kind of the opposite. There's plenty of reason to believe um, that things are not only changing, but in some sense changing more rapidly. And there's a wonderful book that's about to come out that hasn't come out yet by Jeffrey West, uh, who's a scientist at the Santa Fe Institute who studies complexity. And it's on scale and how, you know, cities evolve and live for hundreds of years or corporations or societies. And it's a balance between, uh, you know, figuring things out and keeping them right versus renewal and innovation and things changing. And we were in a world where things are changing. And how to extrapolate toward that the future toward the future west is another uh pessimist he actually thinks that it's all going to collapse is is a very plausible future uh, of our world and that you can you could easily see you know you could easily con- convince yourself either way i think that right. uh because we're changing rapidly it will all just uh will will give out we'll use up our resources we'll you know go nuts and it will collapse or uh we'll figure everything out because we're so smart and everything will be better and then everything will be great uh, to me i don't know which way it's going to go i can i could easily be persuaded that we're nearing a phase transition that things are going to change uh in unpredictable ways because you know, we're still our, our bodies and our lifespans are still very much in the ballpark of what they were ten thousand years ago, right? Mm-hmm. But that doesn't have to remain the same. It doesn't have to be like that a hundred years from now. Uh, we could solve aging, right? We could live for enormously long periods of time. We could the 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 human machine interface is going to become an enormously important thing. Artificial intelligence is going to become an enormously important thing. Uh, we might expand past the earth and 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 fill up the solar system or even beyond so these are all huge game-changing world historical events that it's very very hard to you know just glibly predict what things are going to be like so i'm all in favor of keeping our wits about us as we go through these changes and it's one of the difficulties is that so many people who do spend time seriously talking about these issues come off as a bit evangelical Right? They have a point of view, and they're very uh, strongly committed to it, rather than admitting that we don't really know what's going to happen, so let's you know, think about it very carefully. Well, it's interesting you use the word evangelical, and I don't want to put, put words in your mouth, but as you were talking just now, I was thinking, and this has occurred to me in the past, that as people, we are often looking for a savior. And 
a lot of people find that savior in God and Jesus and all the rest or other forms of religion. But there are other saviors um, at hand, uh, you know, on offer. Uh, Sometimes it's a, a kind of economic theory that promises to save the world or or technology and, and science, uh, as we've been discussing, is is the thing that's going to uh, really save us from ourselves or from eminent destruction. And I wonder if you think that this is a kind of uh, longing that that humans have for some reason that we, we want rather than the contingency that seems pretty obvious to us. Uh, we just don't know and things are pretty contingent to saying um, there's a silver bullet that if we just got it right would solve you know the lion's share of the if people were just rational or if people just accepted capitalism or communism or if people just accepted you know technology is is going to be the, the way to fix everything yeah it's it's very very natural and human right to um go toward this simple solution or you know a savior a hero you already mentioned the four horsemen right like atheists are no different than anybody else about this like Mm -hmm. scientists are no different whether it's richard Feynman or stephen hawking or albert einstein like there are heroes right and and there are heroes and there are simple answers like if only we did this uh everything would be fine you know when you when you talk about Artificial intelligence is the one that gets people going right now at this moment, right? Like, is artificial intelligence going to save us or destroy us? <laughs> one or the and other. People, well, well, that's the thing. People <laughs> get, like, emotionally upset if you if you suggest an argument in favor of the one they don't believe, right? Right. Uh, they, they get offended by it. And another one is uh, extraterrestrial life. You know, like Stephen Hawking pointed out that maybe we don't want to draw attention to ourselves uh, if there is intelligent life out there in other (laughs) civilizations. Because, like, we're really wimpy compared to, you know, we would be destroyed very plausibly by the overwhelming superiority technologically that that some other uh, civilization would have. And people get so upset by that. They're like, you know, what do you mean? The aliens would be very nice to us. How dare you think that they would be mean? And... You know, you, you have to say, well, what percentage chance as a good Bayesian do you put on the aliens being mean to us? Is it two <laughs> percent? And if it is two percent, and the two percent probability means that humanity would be destroyed, is that a risk you're willing to take? Right. Um, it's just very. It, it's 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 so tempting, so natural to sort of oversimplify uh, these things one way or the other. That that's part of the challenge of uh, of facing the future is that we can't we we need to resist this temptation to do anything but keep all the possibilities in mind this is another thing that a good bayesian will do you will not set your probabilities to zero percent or one percent there is an ensemble of possibilities and they're all there and we all have to keep them in mind and we all have to change the possibilities as we can toward the good ones and away from the bad ones well, Sean, thank you so much for for taking this time uh, with all of us. I can't recommend this book highly enough, The Big Picture on the Origins of Life, Meaning, and the Universe Itself. And, and more than what you write, it's the way that you think about things that I think is most attractive. I, I don't think that you necessarily uncovered some you know insight that hasn't been uncovered elsewhere, but it's really the way that you think all of these issues through and bring them together in a in a sort of a package of you know 
almost like an experiment and like here's here's how you could go about thinking about all of these things together the way you weave so elegantly science and philosophy together when so many scientists seem adversarial to philosophy and vice versa it's just a great i guess example for how all of us especially those of us that have left a religious worldview and have stepped into a naturalistic worldview not because we necessarily wanted to but because that's where we found ourselves uh, it's a ex- good example, I think, of the way that we can go about constructing a worldview or a, a meaning-making system for ourselves that that works. And I'm just really grateful f- for it. Well, I hope that can be an invitation to lots of people to uh, you know join the discussion in a in a helpful way and think about all the possibilities, update our credences, and try to move toward a better life that we can build for ourselves. Sean is such a generous and thoughtful individual and obviously so intelligent and has put his mind to not just physics, but a variety of other disciplines in his pursuit of truth and understanding, which I resonate with so deeply. I love his somewhat obvious observation that the universe is so much bigger than any one of us and that we can be so wrong about so many things. His intellectual humility is such a striking characteristic of his approach to his work. And I find that the more deeply engaged in the work that a person is, the more humble they are about what they claim. And I think that's something that's so um, so often so missing from internet debates and lay people like myself who are engaging in conversations about things for which we really don't have very much expertise. We're, we're really dabbling around the edges. And, and all of us are to a certain degree. I mean, Sean is an expert in physics, but he's a relative novice in other areas. And, and I think it's his respect for those other individuals who are experts in other areas of life and his just generous appraisal of, of life itself and the way that he submits himself to the lived experience of, of himself and others in the world that, that makes his his way of talking about these issues so refreshing and so enlightening. So anyway, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. I hope you'll check out the book, The Big Picture, on the origins of life, meaning, and the universe itself. As Sean said, the paperback version of that will be coming out fairly shortly, and I hope that you will check it out. I'll put some links in the show notes to where you can keep track of Sean on Twitter and and on his website where you can look into other things that he's working on. If you want to uh, stay in touch with us here at the show, you can follow us on Twitter at Our Life After God and on Facebook at facebook.com slash Our Life After God. And you can go to our website at lifeaftergod.org. And if it's your first visit there, it will prompt you to sign up for our email newsletter. And I can guarantee you that you won't get bombarded because it's up to me to send those emails out and I'm pretty bad at it lately. So uh, sign up for the email newsletter and I'll be sending one out fairly shortly to uh, keep you appraised of things that we're doing at Life After God beyond just the podcast. If you're able to support us financially, that is so uh, greatly appreciated. It helps us produce this show. You can uh, find our Patreon page at patreon.com slash lifeaftergod. I appreciate so much all of you who are patrons of the show, who give monthly to support the production costs of this podcast. I'll see you next week with a new X-Files episode with my friend Matthew Faraday. Until then, my name is Ryan Bell, and this has been the Life After God podcast. 